Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 8 of Bad Gays, a podcast all about complicated and bad gay men from history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. Last week we talked about the British neo-Nazi Nicky Crane. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? This week we are taking a trip back into a very different kind of group of 1970s subcultures. Um, in a very different location, the Bay Area of uh, California. And we're going to start with uh, millions of uh, right-thinking middle Americans who opened up their copy of Time magazine on November the 2nd, 1970, to see the following article under the headline, California, Gay Mecca Number 1. Quote, The remote and all but empty, population 430, county of Alpine, California, is a pristine wonderland of majestic peaks, verdant pine forests, and crystalline lakes nestled high in the rugged Sierra Nevada. From their isolation, its residents have long gazed in amusement at the doings of the urbanites below. Tough mountaineers, woodsmen, and fishermen all, they have preserved the pioneer purity of their independent existence. Now, that existence stands threatened and by as unlikely a force as could be imagined, the militant homosexuals of the Gay Liberation Front, (laughs) end quote. And the article went on to describe a, quote, caravan of homosexuals, unquote, who were planning to arrive and to take over. And these homosexuals had announced that because the county's population was only 400, 200 to 300 of them could establish a political majority, take over county institutions, and establish the first ever gay territory in the world, which they plan to call the Stonewall Nation. So today's show is about what happens when a political analysis that emerges out of the politics of alliance ends up departing from the politics of alliance. In other words, it's about when people think that just making something gay is enough. It's about the kinds of people that get forgotten and spoken over when a certain kind of essentialist gay politics are deployed. And even though the Stonewall Nation never came to pass, we cannot take a flight there, we cannot go visit it, the debates about its founding and the failed campaign to establish it reveal some of the really interesting kind of ideological conflicts that were at the heart of uh, the radical gay liberation politics of the 1970s. So... The idea to start the nation came from gay liberationist dissatisfaction with urban gay life and with the gay ghetto. And in the heady sort of late 60s and early 70s worlds of gay liberation, many of these activists uh, were becoming dissatisfied with the world of commercial institutions, largely bars, bookshops, and cafes that had begun to open for gay customers. In the Bay Area, the story of gay bars uh, really starts to kind of explode after World War II. The city was flooded with ex-servicemen whose experience at war had provided new opportunities for the expression of same-sex attraction, and that's kind of the thesis of the fabulous book Coming Out Under Fire by Alan Barabay, who's one of the kind of deans of left gay social history. In the 1950s and 1960s, purpose-built gay institutions like bars and bathhouses began to open, and these institutions catered to gay men explicitly and with increasing openness. Many of them began uh, as institutions that either were kind of men only and then were kind of converted or um, were started for gay men, but there was kind of a pretense. And by the mid-1960s, by 1965, the city of San Francisco, after um, a long history of failed attempts to close these bars and close these spaces, 
trying to police the existence of gay bars and spaces and instead allowed them to operate in specific geographic areas where they could be monitored instead of eliminated. And that's obviously not to say that there was no police presence in or around these spaces or issues with police harassment, but just that the city was no longer trying to have an explicit kind of ban on the existence of gay bars and spaces. Yeah, I think maybe people don't necessarily realize the extent to which suppression of gay spaces happened in America in the 1960s. Um, in New York, it was until the late 1960s, not only was it um, illegal to run a gay bar, it was illegal to serve a man who you know to be homosexual a drink in any bar in New York. So if, you, if someone comes in and you know that they're gay and you serve them a beer on their own with a straight friend or whatever, that was a criminal offense for the barkeeper. Absolutely. And that was the kind of thing that uh, New York Mattachine, uh, before Stonewall, was trying to uh, protest with uh, gay sip-ins at bars that kind of everyone knew were gay bars like Julius's, which is actually still open. Um, if you're in New York, do go visit Julius's. They make a really delicious burger. Um, and uh, I used to see Oliver Sacks hanging out there back when I lived in New York. That's my little oh, dreamy celebrity sighting claim to fame. Um, anyway... Um, in many other cities, um, sort of until 69 and until the 1970s, when some of these laws start to be changed, um, as you mentioned, uh, serving a gay person a drink or operating a gay bar was illegal. And so in many of those cities, like in New York, the mafia um, ended up running a lot of gay bars. Um, in San Francisco, there's a really big difference because a few years earlier, there's this kind of few-year head start on um, being able to operate uh, kind of openly gay bars. Um, the ghetto of kind of gay institutions or gay neighborhoods um, had sort of a longer time to get established. And that certainly doesn't mean that those bars always treated gay people well. I mean, gay landlords are still gay landlords. Gay business owners are still business owners. Um, and we'll get a little bit later into some of the kind of problems that were popping up as people kind of confronted life in this ghetto, which was, um, you know, at least there was the presence of some kind of gay life. But many people did find it uh, pretty limiting. And so um, one major intervention into the kind of politics of the gay ghetto, the kind of geotemporal, uh, geospatial rather, politics of the gay ghetto came from Carl Whitman. Now, Carl Whitman was a member of the National Council of Students for a Democratic Society and was later uh, an activist for LGBT rights. And he co-authored the very influential uh, left-wing essay and organizing document, An Interracial Movement of the Poor, in 1963 with Tom Hayden, who was the founder of SDS. And SDS was a national student activist organization in the U.S. that was one of the main kind of exponents of the new left in the United States. And founded in 1960, uh, SDS developed and expanded rapidly in the mid-1960s, and it had over 300 chapters nationwide by 1969, and was kind of a huge location for um, organizing and sort of the politics of the new left and the campus left, the anti-Vietnam movement, um, etc. in the 1960s. Uh, but by 1969, Carl Whitman had graduated from university, he had moved to San Francisco, and he had come out, and he had started thinking seriously about what the gay ghetto was and what it meant for gay people. 
And so he wrote a document um, called Refugees from America, a Gay Manifesto. And there's a K in the word America there in grand 60s and 70s radical fashion. I love it. And uh, I'm just going to read some quotes uh, from this uh, document now. Quote, San Francisco is a refugee camp for homosexuals. We have fled here from every part of the nation, and like refugees elsewhere, we came not because it is so great here, but because it was so bad there. By the tens of thousands, we fled small towns, where to be ourselves would endanger our jobs and any hope of a decent life. We have fled from blackmailing cops, from families who disowned or quote-unquote tolerated us. We have been drummed out of the armed services, thrown out of schools, fired from jobs, beaten by punks and policemen. And we have formed a ghetto out of self-protection. It is a ghetto rather than a free territory because it is still theirs. Straight cops patrol us. Straight legislators govern us. Straight employers keep us in line. Straight money exploits us. We have pretended everything is okay because we haven't been able to see how to change it. We've been afraid. And the document uh, is quite long. I can't read all of it here. It's important that it is an intersectional document. It gets into the importance of anti-racism, of a strong class analysis, of feminism. Uh, Whitman's analysis is not just about kind of the gays alone, and he explicitly calls for coalition with other movements, movements of uh, street people and the homeless, homophile groups, women's liberation, uh, racial justice uh, movements, and labor unions. Um... But the kind of emotional centerpiece of the document is this claim that the uh, gay ghetto is not free. And I'm going to read another extensive quote from Carl Whitman here. Quote, We are refugees from America. So we came to the ghetto. And as other ghettos, it has its negative and positive aspects. Refugee camps are better than what preceded them, or people never would have come. But they are still enslaving. If only that we are limited to being ourselves there and only there. Ghettos breed self-hatred. We stagnate here, accepting the status quo. Ghettos breed exploitation. Landlords find they can charge exorbitant rents and get away with it, because of the limited area which we have safe to live in openly. Mafia control of bars and baths in New York City is only one example of outside money controlling our institutions for their profit. In San Francisco, the Tavern Guild, and the Tavern Guild was an association of gay business and bar owners, mm -hmm. favors maintaining the ghetto, for it is through ghetto culture that they make a buck. We crowd their bars not because of their merit, but because of the absence of any other social institution. Police are con men who shake down the straight gay in return for not revealing him, the bookstores and movie makers who keep rising prices because they are the only outlet for, for pornography. Our ghetto is certainly more beautiful and larger and more diverse than most ghettos, and it is certainly freer than the rest of America. That's why we're here, but it isn't ours. Capitalists make money off of us, cops patrol us, government tolerates us as long as we shut up, and daily we work for and pay taxes to those who oppress us. To be a free territory, we must govern ourselves, set up our own institutions, defend ourselves, and use our one energies to improve our lives. The emergence of gay liberation communes and our own paper is a good start. The talk about a gay liberation coffee shop and dance hall should be acted on. Rural retreats, political action offices, food cooperatives, a free school, unalienating bars and after-hours places, they must be developed if we are even to have the shadow of a free territory. End quote. So here was a call, and a very inspiring call, to develop something new out of the old, made specifically with the idea that the politics of alliance with other struggles were essential to gay liberation— uh, but some people, unfortunately, only saw the call for gay space. 
So in December of that year, 1969, an activist named Don Jackson gave a speech at the Berkeley, California Gay Liberation Conference of that year. And Jackson had researched the rules for voter registration and population numbers, and he realized that Alpine County, California would be possible to take over with only a few hundred gay people. He said in that speech, quote, I have a recurring daydream. I imagine a place where gay people can be free, a place where there is no job discrimination, police harassment, or prejudice, a place where a gay government can build the base for a flourishing gay counterculture and city. It would mean gay territory. It would mean a gay government, a gay civil service, a county welfare department which made public assistance payments to the refugees from persecution and prejudice. He said this territory would have, quote, the world's first gay university, partially paid for by the state, the world's first museum of gay arts, sciences, and history, and a free county health service and hospital. Now, anyone who's ever been to an art museum can tell you that uh, <laughs> this would not be the world's first gay museum, but um, I am on the board of a gay museum, which is founded, I think, uh, on some of the same political tendencies, so you do see uh, the directions where this can go. Um, Jackson said that these things would be paid for through property taxes and state and federal subsidies, and eventually the Los Angeles chapter of the Gay Liberation Front assumed responsibility for the project, which became informally known as Stonewall Nation. Uh, Don Jackson continued to be one of the primary activists for the founding of the nation. He wrote an article in the Berkeley Barb, which was a left newspaper in 1970, uh, quote, My tears of sorrow turned to tears of rage when I thought of the great injustices perpetuated against my people. That night, I cried myself to sleep and vowed I would spend the rest of my life working to end this hideous injustice. That night, I dreamed that my friend was standing by my bed. He said, Don't cry, child. He took me by the hand and said, Come, I will show you a place. Then we were on a mountaintop. I looked down into the little valley and saw the tightly clustered town on a little river, its pastel-colored buildings glowing in the brilliant sun. The next morning, I conceived the idea of a gay colony and of gay nationalism as a quicker way to freedom. He's like a fruity gay Moses. Exactly. Um, and the use of the word colony there is really interesting, and I think our, mm. our listeners should keep that in their heads, and we'll kind of get back to that later. So as I mentioned earlier, the Los Angeles chapter of the Gay Liberation Front became responsible for the project, and the Gay Liberation Front was a loose collection of activist groups which advocated for sexual liberation for all people. It's worth noting here that the U.S. Gay Liberation Front and the U.K. Liberation Gay Liberation Front are different, um, and I'm not an expert on their differences in politics, but our U.K. listeners who are familiar with the U.K. Gay Liberation Front should keep that in mind um, as they listen to my characterization of the U.S. Gay Liberation Front. So the U.S. Gay Liberation Front believed that heterosexuality was a remnant of cultural inhibition and felt that the required cultural change uh, wouldn't come around until we destroyed social institutions and rebuilt them without defined sexual roles. And the Gay Liberation Front was intent on destroying the family and replacing it with a loose affiliation of people without um, biology. And it was named in a provocative allusion to the Algerian National Liberation Front and the Vietnamese National Liberation Front, which were kind of anti-colonial movements uh, in those countries, um, which is part of a long trend of gay identification with both incredibly colonial images of um, primitivized or otherized people and also affiliation with a certain kind of anti-colonial politics 
if a limited kind of anti-colonial politics. Um, and in 1970, um, the Street Queen Caucus of the Gay Liberation Front, which had formed um, as this big kind of unified organization um, after Stonewall and then rapidly began splintering off in the grand tradition of left groups uh, in history. Uh, in 1970, the Street, the Street Queen Caucus of the GLF, which included Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, uh, split off to form uh, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, uh, which was a group that focused on providing support for gay prisoners, housing for homeless gay youth and street people, um, and focused on uh, other young street queens, as they then called them, uh, people who I think now would often be described as trans, and, and those kind of identities and terminologies were beginning to kind of evolve during that period. Um, it is, I think, important to remember that uh, gay and lesbian had different and more flexible and less gendered meanings than they do now in the 1970s and the 1980s in this context. And so there are a lot of people who I think correctly are now classified as trans or now thought of as trans, or if they're still alive, they now describe themselves as always having been trans. And at the time, a lot of materials um, looped them in under words like gay or queen and the, the kind of distinctions of identity were a bit less strict at that time. Um, and that's just important to remember as we think about all of these different histories. So, um, in other words, what I'm saying uh, by kind of getting into the Gay Liberation Front and this split is that just as this project is coming up, uh, the Gay Liberation Front is beginning to split up with uh, a lot of people of trans experience and women and working class people and people of color beginning to kind of um, move out or move on or agitate independently and the organization thus becoming more single issue and more white and more middle class and more male. And of course, a lot of those split offs were because the organization was already in many ways uh, white and single issue and middle class and male. And so that's um, just important to put into that context. Um, it's also important to remember that uh, despite the fact that most of the people that I'm talking about on this episode were men, because most of the people who were involved in the kind of media campaign to found the Stonewall Nation were men, um, despite that, there were actually many women who also uh, found the concept of the project very appealing and important. Um, in her memoir, Tales of the Lavender Menace, Carla J. wrote, quote, the fastest place to achieve true liberation, or so we believed, would be to find a place where we could all move and become the majority. Then we could pass laws that would benefit our way of life. Alpine would become the first American queer county. In some ways, this was our cleverest idea. Instead of trying to tackle the entire United States, we could transform just one corner of it. Since we looked like everyone else, the locals would never catch on until we already owned much of the property. Since we looked like everybody else... Yeah, I, I would also encourage you to uh, go and look at pictures of uh, gay liberation front activists from the 70s and see if you think they looked like everyone else. <laughs> but um, I think they certainly looked less like everyone else than even most radical queers do now. Um, so there's a really fantastic book from about uh, two years ago by Emily Hobson, a historian in the US, and the book is called Lavender and Red. And... Uh, the book is about the emergence of a gay and lesbian left, uh, as opposed to a pure kind of uh, gay liberation movement, but it's sort of the emergence of a gay and lesbian left out of the gay liberation movement uh, in the Bay Area in the 1970s and the 1980s. And uh, she uses the debate 
over the Alpine Valley project to situate a really important divide between uh, two political tendencies. And this project became a way for a sort of left-oriented uh, gay movement to identify itself in opposition with maybe a more essentialist or more kind of gay nationalist part of the movement. And she writes, quote, Alpine did, however, have at least one lasting effect. It prompted clarification of the differences between gay nationalism and a gay left. The radicals who rejected the Alpine project held that gay nationalism stood in conflict with third world solidarity and that the project replicated the gay ghetto. By contrast, they argued that sexual liberation could be achieved only through anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist revolution. Thus, in opposing the Alpine project, gay leftists crystallized their own goals. And uh, before I get into sort of talking about exactly what happened with the Alpine project and kind of how it all went down and how it got from being kind of a gay activist's fever dream at a Berkeley conference to Time magazine, um, just to briefly note some of the struggles that gay left activists were involved in kind of in and around and against the idea of the ghetto in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s. Um, there were a lot of protests of gay bars and of that tavern league, that association of gay bar and business owners itself, around racial discrimination and bar entry. A lot of bars would have enhanced ID uh, requirements for black people and other people of color. Um, and so they would protest against uh, things like that and protest against um, various kind of racial and uh, working class and femme uh, discrimination. It's important to note also that Leathermen, who people don't always think of as being the most political or the most progressive, actually joined uh, in some cases with the um, gay and lesbian left activists to protest or to boycott some of these bars, like the magazine Drummer, which was a San Francisco-based magazine, which was kind of the mouthpiece of the national leather subculture um, would not take ads from bars that had discriminatory entry policies. Uh, and actually, in 1983, someone wrote Drummer a letter saying, basically, thank you so much for publishing this magazine to show that gay men aren't all these like horrible screaming queens and freaks and Nelly clowns. And you're showing that we're not just awful and effeminate and girly. And you're showing that we're real men. And the editors responded like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. And actually, Leathermen and Queens have more in common than you think. Yeah, like, Leathermen and Queens are both kind of um, fighting against some of the same kind of assumptions about where sexuality should be, what it should look like, and sort of normativity. Yeah, I've read that letter, that response, and it's really, really great. It's really good. And Hobson also describes um, a lot of really active movements around solidarity with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua that uh, gay and lesbian left activists in the 1980s were engaged in in San Francisco. It's a really fantastic book, and people should read it. So back to Stonewall Nation. Um, the Gay Liberation Front activists sat on the idea for a while. You know, it seemed uh, interesting and promising, but it also obviously presented huge challenges, never mind, you know, actually moving out there. Just quickly on that note, uh, where, where exactly is Alpine Valley? So Alpine, California, Alpine County um, is located on the border with Nevada in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So, so it's, it's right on the edge away from the ocean. Right on the edge of California, away from the ocean. So you okay. cross all of California at about the level of San Francisco and you get to Alpine. Okay. So um, in October 1970, uh, an LA Times reporter had heard some rumors about this project, and it sounds like a juicy story, uh, invading fags. And so he phoned the LA Gay Liberation Front and uh, 
Out of a piece of luck, a guy named Don Kilhefner answered the phone. And Don Kilhefner was a longtime L.A. gay activist who would later be one of the founders of the Radical Fairies and Tree Roots, which were both kind of back-to-the-landy gay spiritual movements. And Don Kilhefner told the journalist, oh, yes, uh, come on October 18th, we're going to have a press conference. And then hung up the phone and figured, well, shit, now we have to have a press conference on October 18th. These were some crafty, crafty queens. There was no conference scheduled. There were no plans. They were bluffing. But they threw a presentation together, realizing that here was an opportunity to get a huge amount of media attention, and appeared before the press on October 18th, described their plans, and declared that they already had 300 signups. And again, this was just complete bluffing. They had nothing. And a member of the L.A. Metropolitan Community Church, and the Metropolitan Community Church was a gay church that spread throughout the United States in the 1970s and is still active in many communities today. And in Europe, actually. And in Europe, yeah. Um, so a member of the L.A. MCC owned land already in Alpine and compiled a report which identified uh, which people might be hostile, what the growing season would be, what the land looked like, etc., and uh, after this press conference, there was an article in the L.A. Times and a media frenzy. So they, they were going to go and it would be an agricultural movement. Yes, they were going to grow food and try to be as self-sufficient as possible. There were disagreements about it. I mean, because it never got out of the kind of media stage, mm. um, I think it kind of could be whatever anyone thought it was going to be. I think the back to the landy and the hippie people were kind of prepared for that. I think there were probably some... The kind of people you might call infinity pool socialists now who kind of assume ideology, who kind of thought that there would just be a kind of some kind of abundance from the beginning. I think there were a lot of different kind of opinions about it. Um, so, as I said, this set off a total media frenzy. It's an unbelievable story, right? A bunch of gays are going to go take over a county. And so uh, gay separatists began raising money, stockpiling food and sewing blankets uh, and some Bay Area gay, libera uh, gay liberation activists founded an organization called Alpine Liberation Front. There was another group called Bay Area Gays for Unification and Nationalism. And the media frenzy went international. There was an article in the London Observer which reported that they had potentially over 1,100 potential migrants. And at this point, um, those numbers were no longer inflated. Because of the media attention, there actually were a lot of people who wrote yeah, in yeah. and said, yes, I want to go. Yes, I want to be part of it. Build it and they shall come. Absolutely. Um, so and the Gay Liberation Front at this point claimed that they already had $250,000 in 1970 dollars of capital to get started. And one important question to ask is how seriously anyone ever quite took this. Uh, Emily Hobson's book, uh, and I trust it, it's a brilliant and well-researched book, suggests that the project was, at least for the L.A. gays, mostly a media stunt. But for Don Jackson and for some of the other separatists who were really kind of committed, it seems like they were really always quite serious about it. Now, as a media stunt, it, you have to say it was successful. All of a sudden, there were all of these articles talking about you know, this awful invasion of homosexuals, but there was the name of the Gay Liberation Front, and it was a conversation about homosexuality that wasn't about people getting arrested in a truck stop bathroom. Um, it was about a kind of confident movement um, that yeah. was about to kind of prove its power. But Hobson points out that the project's shallow treatment of race and other kinds of alliance ended up engendering a lot of opposition among gay people. For example... 
The project's leaders talked a lot about the Black Panther Party, but they had, unlike many other uh, leaders in the anti-racist gay struggle and in the gay and lesbian left, uh, they had no working relationship with anyone in the Panthers. And in fact, a lot of the main activists uh, who were working on this project had some uh, somewhat questionable views about race. Charles Thorpe, who was a Bay Area activist, claimed that his homosexuality made him, quote, a white Negro. Um, Don Jackson, who I mentioned earlier, said, quote, gays are still slaves today, contrasting that with black people whose slavery had ended. Ah! Yes. Um, and quoting Emily Hobson here, uh, quote, blending the rhetoric of settler colonialism, global decolonization, and radical masculinity, Alpine Project spokespeople described gay migrants as pioneers and the Mountain County as open land. Various articles in gay liberation newspapers mentioned potentially hostile natives. Um, project publicity uh, included images of women and people in color, but the leaders and the signers up were almost entirely white men. Uh, oh, and then it gets even worse. God. It gets even worse because, as in most places on the North American continent, um, you know, regardless of the uh, 200-odd white people who were living there, uh, Alpine... County California is occupied indigenous land um, and is the occupied land of the Washoe people. Um, Charles Thorpe, the same one who called himself a white Negro, said of the Alpine Valley Project, quote, it's like the Indians. If they take Alcatraz and stay, it's theirs. And he's referring to uh, the occupation of Alcatraz by a Native American liberation organization. Aim. But aim, yeah. But Alcatraz, that was reclaiming Occupied indigenous yeah. land, right? Um, and so with these kind of statements, this project became uh, part of a long and haunted interaction between the politics of queer liberation and the politics of indigenous sovereignty. And there has long been a trend, as we've mentioned before on this show, of cosmopolitan and settler gay men identifying with racialized non-state figures as living examples of a primitive past or as potential models for future sexual modernities. Now, the Stonewall Nation leaders claimed indigenous status on the land and friendship with Washoe people, even though they didn't actually consult with any Washoe people, and they referred to them uh, in quite racist ways in internal letters and notes. Emily Hobson quotes an internal project letter saying, quote, They are a primitive tribe. We can make no presumption until we study them. Caution must be used that they are not from a tribe that is an ancient enemy. The underground press will eat up a story of peace talks between gays and Indians with photos of gift exchange, etc. And I think it's really interesting there to look at this closely. So that phrase, they are not from a tribe that is an ancient enemy. What's happening there is that the white guy writing that is referring, is conceiving of himself as being somehow part of an indigenous tribe. Like yeah. he's claiming indigenous citizenship. And this really was a thing for a certain kind of back to the landist um, or separatist gay in this period where so it's not only we need to take care that I mean bad enough if they were saying we need to take care that this tribe of people who you know actually whose land this actually is um, aren't going to be homophobic or aren't going to be mean to us or aren't going to be opposed but the phrase tribe that is an ancient enemy so a you're presuming your own indigenous status b you're presuming to understand what the system of ancient enemy like is or means and then you haven't even met with the Washoe leadership to determine what their response to the project would be. Um, by the sounds of it, literally no consideration regarding the sort of gender and sexuality, um, culture and norms of the people they're talking about. None at all. No. Um, and 
yet they kept promoting it as though this was going to be kind of a project of alliance with the people there. And so they promoted it as kind of a in alliance with these different kind of native struggles, uh, but unlike some other uh, kind of primitivist gay uh, theorists and thinkers and leaders like Harry Hay, who when this project began was living out in New Mexico and involved with um, various kinds of gay activism, but also uh, a lot of native-led struggles around land rights and water rights. Um, these people uh, have nothing to do with no, the... this orientalized like view, like it's just like a children's book. Absolutely, like my toes are curled and my eyes are rolling. Like ah, oh, like seventies was a trip. They were. So this is another one of these kind of burn fast and fast and bright things. So all this is happening in October nineteen seventy. Um, and by November 1970, things are starting to look south. Uh, so this all lasted about a month. Um, in November of 1970, the Berkeley Gay Liberation Front declared itself in opposition to the project uh, in a two-thirds vote. And the members of the Gay Liberation Front called the project racist and sexist and counter-revolutionary. And they made the argument that no one was actually going to combat the ghetto. They were just going to pick it up and move it someplace else. Yeah. Um, also on November 12th, the existing Board of Supervisors of Alpine County, California, uh, a rather alarmed group of people, convened to discuss, quote, the infiltration of undesirable people into the county and, quote, to coordinate the plans and activities of all concerned agencies with regard to proposed takeover. Um, representatives from NBC and Life magazine attended this obscure County Board of Supervisors meeting, which is probably the only time that the national media has ever cared about the goings-on of the Alpine County Board of Supervisors. And what they uh, decided that they would do is, if the Gay Liberation Front takeover occurred, they would just dissolve the county and merge the county with another larger county and therefore avoid the establishment of the uh, Stonewall Nation. And so with this, the kind of dream of the Stonewall Nation uh, in itself began to fade. But this combination of kind of back-to-the-landism and self-indigenization and gay nationalism uh, would certainly continue in various forms. Um, I've already mentioned the radical fairies a little bit, but um, there were, throughout the 1970s, various kind of uh, back-to-the-land gay communes being established across the United States. Uh, the magazine RFD, which still circulates today, was begun... Um, RFD, a lot of people think it means like Radical Fairy Digest, um, but it began before the term Radical Fairy had actually been coined and has stood for many things, including uh, Radiant Fungus Declaration, Really <laughs> Feeling Decadent, um, Ranting for Days, etc., etc. Rural Faggot Delivery is another one. Um, I could have done with that. One of these uh, locations was in Wolf Creek, Oregon, which was actually co-founded by Carl Whitman uh, in 1976. Wolf Creek hosted a political conference called Faggots in Class Struggle. Um, I would really encourage our readers to go online. You can actually find the full uh, program uh, from that conference, including transcripts of everything that was said, transcripts from all the self-criticism sessions. Um, reports from the Moonlight Ritual and the Orgy and the Teepee um, and everything else you'd want from the kind of radical left gay liberation politics of the 70s. But it is, I think, in contrast with the Alpine Valley Project, despite all of the ways in which it's very trippy and very 70s and very limited, a kind of honest attempt to think through 
uh, what the politics of alliance mean and meant in this context and like what was a way of kind of operating on some of the things that that this project had raised without maybe falling into all of the traps um the orgy report from that conference is also really remarkable because there's two. There's Sorry, a, the what? The orgy report. Oh, okay. I mentioned this. There was a moonlight ritual and an orgy and a teepee. Um, the orgy I understand, but I don't understand the report. Well, so two people uh, wrote back uh, orgy reports. One from kind of a bearded brother of the revolution. It was talking about how great this was and how he was so happy to... Um, be uh, part of this amazing thing and it felt so good and the spirituality was wonderful and we were all connecting and then one by the self-identified sissy who said no it wasn't good and if you wanted it to be good here's what you would have had to do and so it it presents this really interesting opportunity to look at this kind of granular conflict about the politics of sex and gay liberation and in case you're wondering why I'm rattling this all off the top of my head yes I do have some forthcoming academic writing coming out (laughs) about this Um, and people can uh, find it uh, when it finds its way to uh, the public sphere Um, so that's 1976 in 1979 uh, a spiritual call for uh, the establishment of the radical fairies is released by Harry Hay and Don Gil Hefner and Mitch Walker. And um, that document ends up bringing a lot of people out to New Mexico for the first kind of radical ferry conference. And then this kind of network of uh, back to the landist gay groups kind of effloresces into the ferries. What's interesting also about the ferries is that um, despite the fact that in many ways uh, they are limited by the same um, things by which the Alpine Valley Project was limited, uh, a certain kind of essentialist view of what gayness is and a certain kind of self-indigenization um, that really limits um, the sort of potential reach of their politics and that also um, appropriates uh, Native cultures in uh, ways ranging from unfortunate to violent. Um, despite all of that, at the beginning, they do start out... Um, much more self-consciously and seriously pursuing uh, the kind of politics of alliance that the gay and lesbian left, as defined by Hobson, um, end up pursuing. Mm. So the fairies, um, initially, uh, Harry Hay thinks that the kind of insights about connection and spirituality that the fairies uh, learn uh, could eventually be used to um, teach union members how to organize. Um, And actually... It's so cute. It's cute, but then also there's recent academic work by Michelle Lester O'Brien, who's a sociology PhD at NYU and is part of the Pinko Magazine Collective, um, which is about that. It's about how trans women in New York City on shop floors, uh, retail shop floors, use the uh, interpersonal skills and the conflict resolution skills that they learned in queer and trans organizing to organize and lead unions. Sure. So it's not actually uh, it's not actually that out there. Um Unfortunately, that is not the direction that the fairies ended up pursuing. And actually, at the end of his life, Harry Hay wrote an email uh, to a friend saying, Oh, no, I'm worried about the fairies. I'm worried that after all of that, all we've created is low-rent gay-est. Which is not so far from uh, one of the many truths about the fairies. (laughs) Another really good kind of consideration of probably the best uh, consideration of the Fairies and the Politics of Indigeneity is the book by Elizabeth Povinelli called Empires of Love, in which uh, Povinelli, who is an anthropologist at Columbia, 
tracks her movement between Aboriginal Australian communities and fairy communes and thinks about how people talk about love and spirituality and injury and sickness and carnality in those different worlds. So, um, with that comes the end of the story of the Alpine Valley Project, which burned fast and bright, but kind of contained the seeds for a lot of really interesting developments on the anti-assimilationist and radical gay left. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. I don't really know where to begin with that, because there's so many elements that are really... Um, yeah, it depends upon your, your outlook, I guess, which is in one way they were so hopeful and utopian, you could argue, but at the same time they were so privileged and naive that they, and they didn't seem to be interrogating that process at all. I mean, I guess it'd been, it would have been interesting to see how it played out in practic- practical terms if they actually had set it up, but I imagine it would have crumbled like so many of those Bachelor projects did in the, in the 70s very, very quickly. Um, the thing that I was thinking about is how people who, uh, white people who categorize themselves so clearly as being the other or outside of white American society, by the book, just replicate the very foundations of white supremacy in that society. You know, their, their reason for leaving was no different to the pilgrims, for example. Mm-hmm. Their, um, appropriation and um, exploitation of uh, indigenous culture and way of seeing themselves is like exactly what was happening in the Boston Tea Party, for example. Do you know what I mean? Like they, not exactly. Um, I disagree with you a little bit. I mean, I think there is a there are a few important differences. Uh, one being that the, I mean, the character of the sort of figure of the homosexual and the figure of the primitive are created at similar times and by similar colonial processes. And so I think there is a reason why um, some, actually why so many um, gay and lesbian, same-sex loving, uh, gender non-conforming people have kind of seen the primitive as a way out and it's obviously not a way out, and using it as a way out um, often recreates and kind of reifies the same structures. But I think it is a little bit different than just kind of appropriating the savage kind of out of nowhere. Um, I mean, it's, you know, remember that one of the first kind of ingredients in the figure of the savage as this figure ripe for exploitation is sodomy, right? And images of, or kind of stories about um, the savage habits of these quote-unquote nature people um, 
are often the only depictions of same-sex erotic behavior that are available to the people who then find themselves being classified as homosexuals by the same kind of colonial systems of control that created that primitive figure to begin with. So I, I do think there is a bit of a difference there, but it's also important to note the similarities and the ways in which these kinds of images of uh, pioneers or of a certain kind of pioneer or frontier masculinity uh, also become really uh, important for uh, gay people as well, especially around projects like Alpine. Yeah, but, but it's not just the masculinity though. I'm thinking more of the idea that there is this um, quote-unquote virgin land Mm-hmm. On which you can create an entirely new society by by removing yourself from the old society which you believe to be persecuting you, and the idea that you won't just take with you all the structures of the old society that in, inhabit within yourself because you've been raised within that society that is pure colonialist. Yeah, and also the idea that you're going to do that, or maybe it's utopian, and then it becomes colonialist because the land isn't empty. Yeah. It becomes colonialist because there is someone else already there, um, and those people, uh, as in this project, are never particularly asked what they think about the matter. Um, I do actually think, I mean, you said it's not just about masculinity, it's about virgin land, but think about the phrase virgin land. Well, right? of course, yeah. And who comes to, who comes to plunder virgin land? Um, no, you don't plunder virgin land, you fertilize it. Ah, true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you, please. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it it's interesting because it becomes, Alpine becomes the kind of confluence of a bunch of different subcultural trends, all of which are kind of allying at this moment around this kind of politics of settler gay nationalism. Um and then you see the traces of that politics in a wide variety of later movements. You see uh, traces of it in kind of back to the landist um, gay hippie organizations, which um, maybe depart from some of the more uh, outrageously racist uh, statements of some of the Alpine organizers, but still maintain a lot of the kind of problematic, to say the least, appropriations. Um, and then you also, I think, see something of gay nationalism, albeit in sort of neutered and very transformed form in the kind of uh, skim milk representation only identity politics that characterize a lot of gay discourse now, where the idea that X but make it gay is yeah. somehow better, yeah. you know, um, in a weird way, in a weird, weird way. Uh, despite the fact that he would never have gone out there, um, the appeal of someone like Pete Buttigieg uh, is not too dissimilar from the appeal of Alpine, I think, to some of the more middle-class and conservative elements that were part of the project. Um, that being, you know, like it is, but make it gay. You know, the problem here is that the cops are straight, rather than the problem being that they're cops. That they're cops. Yeah. Is there also something to be said here about the relationship between urban space and homosexuality? Homosexuality emerging out of urbanization, the fear of the sort of sexual depravity of the working class, which revolutionized those sort of Victorian laws in England and Europe. And then for gay people, that is still an incredibly strong drive, the, 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 the urge f- to move towards an urban center in order to find other gay people and to find 
the um, the benefits of socialization and sex with other people, etc. But actually, city life for some people is very, very stressful. Is this like an underlying aspect, perhaps, of um, gay identity uh, in, in America and in Europe, which isn't really provided for in terms of how how um how can you be gay in rural areas in a way which you don't have to fundamentally um abdicate some part of your personality absolutely no i think that's really that really is part of the part of the question and it's a problem that to go back to the fairies again i think the fairies have come closer to solving at least for the people who are in it uh, who are members who actually live out on live out uh, in the land full time, than maybe anyone else. I mean, with the kind of with the establishment of of places like Short Mountain in Tennessee, where people can uh, live kind of rural lifestyles in a totally kind of safe and uh, non homonormative uh, yeah. kind of a way, um, but. There are still many people uh, who would criticize that, who do criticize that, and who say, you know, it's one thing to make a gay Bantustan or a gay Israel, but the much harder thing to do is to actually transform the society you live in. And it's an old question that won't go away anytime soon about do you try to kind of make an enclave or do you try to... uh, take over the world. There's a really interesting uh, documentary uh, series or kind of speculative documentary series that was made last year by Leo Herrera called The Father's Project, which imagined a world in which uh, AIDS had never happened. And in Herrera's kind of fever dream, uh, this project also succeeded. And a sort of nationwide network of Stonewall colonies are about to elect uh, Vito Russo, the AIDS activist, who in this case is just sort of a film activist, another kind of activist president. And it's a very beautiful series. It's still being released. He's releasing mm. a couple of year, um, but is also interesting and troubling, I think, for the ways that it raises questions about the appeal of this kind of politics now um, and who wants this and who, uh, you know, what, what do they think they're going to get out of it? Yeah. Um, I think lastly, there's this sort of this strategy, this political strategy of taking over through reaching a majority, um, a particular county in the US, is now an explicit strategy of the far right. And there are similar discourses regarding um, uh, an enclave in the sort of northwest of America that will be a white enclave and this sort of um, ethnic nationalism link ethnic separatist nationalism um which i wonder how much that that was playing out as well in some of the decisions that they were making around this paranoia yeah the the paranoia that the alpiners felt absolutely um and the idea that uh finding space away from police and away from um mainstream uh had really urgent importance for them I mean, the other analogy is there was that libertarian plan to take over New Hampshire, and they were going to like truck in libertarians from all over the U.S. to to take New Hampshire over. And these projects never quite end up working out. It's actually hard to get a lot of people to uh, move someplace yeah. uh, and take something over. Um, 
I mean, the version of this that has succeeded, at least in gay world, is much more focused on these kind of smaller communes where they're not trying to take over existing structures, but to kind of create their own structure within the structure, if yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, just kind of flying under the radar. I did um, I did a very interesting interview a couple of years ago with, um, with a friend who lives in a gay commune in Hackney. I was doing a sort of tour of 80s gay communes in Hackney. Um, and he was saying that they actually ran two communes, one in Hackney and one in the countryside, and actually having that dialogue between the two and being able to move between the two was uh, was really beneficial. And that, to me, sounds like a an ideal situation. You know, like, why have one commune when you can have a country house commune? Exactly. Um, but, of, of course, like, any sort of... These will always continue to raise the same sort of inter- intersectional questions around around race and um, uh, and gender as well. Absolutely. So, Ben... The Alpine Valley gays, good gays or bad gays? I'm going to say bad gays. Um, Maybe not some of the people who kind of joined the project in the kind of heat of excitement, but I do think that uh, the sort of total somewhere between ignorance and outright racism uh, shown by some of its leaders is uh, pretty difficult to... uh, get around or to combat what would you say yeah no i think that's exactly right i think there's this sort of spark which is like as he said like a a strange daydream that had no real political thought behind it and then adding that to a sort of layers and layers of either ignorance or privilege or a combination to both which left them unable to really um think practically about what the implications of their project is not unforget not unforgivable, but just is um uh is really lazy on their parts when there were so many other people who were making much more practical material suggestions of how to improve the lives of so many more people who didn't just look like them. Absolutely. And and I think Emily Hobson does a really good job of laying out how this project became kind of important in that uh division. And so in addition to Emily Hobson's book, uh again, Lavender and Red, um which is about uh, gay liberation and uh, the politics of solidarity in uh, San Francisco uh, in the 70s and 80s. I would recommend that people read uh, Carl Whitman's Manifesto, Refugees from America itself, um, a book by Alan Barabay, a series of essays called My Desire for History, which is a lot of great information about kind of the development of the gay ghetto in San Francisco, um, and then a master's thesis um, that was written at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, by someone named Jason Carter. And the master's thesis is called Gay Outlaws, the Alpine County Project Reconsidered, um, and has a lot of really uh, interesting source work. Um, He has a whole thesis to talk about the project and not just uh, the few pages that Hobson can give to it. And so there's a lot of real detail in there about how this all went down. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow the show at BadGaysPod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgayspod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,